Hi everyone, this is Mike, tax attorney. In this podcast, I wanted to chat a little bit about the statute of limitations. Um, specifically, I want to talk about how a previous criminal case affects statute of limitations uh, considerations. So the focus here will be on the statute of limitations as to the assessment of taxes for the years involved in the criminal investigation itself. As uh, many of you are aware, um, the general rule when it comes to the statute of limitations is that the IRS uh, must assess any tax or issue a notice of deficiency by the later of, um, there's two options here, three years of when the return was filed or three years of when the return was due to be filed. Now, that general rule gets swallowed up by a number of, of um, exceptions, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but going back to the uh, question itself of how a previous criminal case affects statute of limitations considerations, I've kind of boiled it down to approximately um, four main points here. Uh, so there are basically four ways um, that a previous criminal conviction um, can affect the statute of limitations. The first is if the criminal conviction was caused by the taxpayer's failure to file a return. In that case, an important strategic decision has to be made as to whether to file the return, however um, late that might be. So let's go into that a little bit deeper. Under section 6501c3, the statute of limitations period does not begin to run until the return is filed. So the strategic uh, decision that must be made here is, will the filing of a civil return give the government information that it might not otherwise have and that it can use to build a criminal case? Um, so. Uh, you know, one wants to tread very carefully here because if the return uh, provides um, the smoking gun or the ammunition, so to speak, for the IRS to bring a criminal case against a taxpayer, then it may not be um, the best decision to file the return um, late. Uh, so in that case, it's very important to... Um, you know, to do an assessment, a risk assessment, and determine whether um, the bad will outweigh the good. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, it's uh, not going to help the client to file a return, uh, albeit late, um, that uh, potentially carries the roadmap to fraud and that the government can use to turn around and uh, build a criminal case. The second consideration is that under 6501c4, a taxpayer can consent to extend the statute of limitations period. And this is um, common um, in civil tax audits. Um, the revenue agent may uh, say to the tax uh, representative, uh, we're nudging up against a three-year statute of limitation. I can issue a staff notice now, but I'd rather prefer to have more time to do this audit right, will you agree to extend the statute of limitations? 
Now, if the case has already uh, gone criminal, there is not a lot of incentive uh, for the tax professional and uh, to extend the statute of limitations. But if the case hasn't gone criminal yet, um, but it's an eggshell audit, uh, this, um, this makes the decision um, even uh, more pronounced. Uh, pract uh, tax practitioners disagree on the right approach. Some recommend against granting consent when there's a potential of criminal investigation. Others um, believe that uh, the best uh, thing to do in this case would be to um, you know, kind of get along with the agent and not uh, uh, rock the boat, so to speak, um, because uh, there's always a possibility that the irregularities in the reporting um, may not uh, come to light. Um, so at the end of the day, a risk assessment has to be done to determine um, especially if you're in an eggshell audit, um, how, um, how significant uh, the issue is and how likely it is that the examiner will pick it up during an audit. If it's the underreporting of a significant amount of gross income, um, then it might just be a matter of, it, of uh, when and not if the agent discovers it. And in that case, um, you know, it may not be a good idea to cooperate. If it's a very minor irregularity um, and uh, perhaps um, there were uh, some um, deductions, uh, some additional deductions that the taxpayer uh, took that he or she otherwise was not entitled to that um, might not necessarily mean the difference between a referral to CI and whether the case remains civil, um, meaning that it will remain civil uh, once these, um, you know, once these, uh, once these deductions are corrected, then perhaps um, the tax professional might recommend to his client that they cooperate uh, with the agent. Now, if the decision is made to grant the consent, uh, the representative should distinguish between the two forms used for this purpose. There's Form 872 and Form 872A. 872 extends the limitations period for a specified uh, time of uh, duration, while 872A extends the period until the agreement is revoked by either party. Um, I'm sure as you're probably listening to this that, um, you know, logically 872A is the preferred uh, form of choice. Third, when the allegedly criminal conduct consists of omitting income from the return, Section 6501E provides for a six-year limitations period. Um, so to the extent that there is a substantial omission of income from the return, the statute of limitations period gets bumped up from three to six years. Um, so again, these are exceptions that swallow up our general rule that the IRS must assess any tax or issue a notice of deficiency by the later of three years of when the return was filed or three years of when the return was due to be filed. Again, uh, that's our general baseline rule, but uh, these are the exceptions that uh, all but swallow up the rule and broaden the statute of limitations period beyond the three years. Um, now, when is 
a omission of income substantial uh, because we're getting involved in a very um, uh, vague area here when we start throwing around terms like substantial omission of income because what might be substantial to one person might not be substantial to another. And so it is important to do a little bit more digging and determine how um, that uh, term is defined by the courts. And um, substantial is basically um, defined as when the total amount omitted from the return exceeds 25% of the gross income shown on the return. Um, so again, an omission is substantial if the total amount omitted exceeds 25% of the gross income shown on the return. That 25% is critical um, for purposes of um, having a working knowledge of substantial. And it's relevant in the criminal context because if you think of it this way, if there is an omission of 25% or more, then the government need not worry about proving fraud in a civil case. Um, so to the extent in the criminal case there was an omission of 25% um, or more of the gross income shown on the return, then the government basically uh, gets a pass. It need not worry about proving fraud in a civil case. Uh, the six-year statute will suffice to bring the criminal side uh, to a conclusion. Fourth, uh, the period of assessment is unlimited, and I do mean unlimited here. This is not, um, you know, uh, unlimited is not being used here in the sense that there is an endpoint. It means uh, until time immemorial, um, if the return is false or fraudulent with the intent to evade tax. Um, so the significance of that is that the tax may be assessed at any time. Uh, the unlimited assessment period applies as long as any part of the return is fraudulent. And that's the part that some, sometimes can be a little bit um, confusing and misleading. The IRS does not have to show that the entire return was fraudulent to the extent that they can show that even a small part of the return was fraudulent, then they get um, this um, incredible um, windfall, so to speak, in the sense that they can go back and assess uh, tax uh, from time immemorial. Now, uh, there is a limitation here. Uh, the criminal conviction for one or multiple years does not create a presumption that inaccuracies on returns for other years were was attributable to fraud. So let's say, for example, that a taxpayer goes to trial um, and or pleads guilty to a tax offense for one or multiple years. And let's say those years happen to be, uh, just for the sake of argument, 2005, um, 2006, and 2007. Um, just because there was an admission or a finding of fraud for 05, 06, 07 does not um, mean that there was fraud for years after that time or even for years prior to that time. Um, so um, just it's not kind of false in one, false in all. That's a jury charge that um, the jury gets read when a witness um, is caught lying during their testimony. And um, sometimes 
the attorney or the prosecutor at the end of the case, depending on who the witness was testifying for, what side, will ask the jury, will ask the judge rather, to read the jury an instruction that because the witness lied, uh, blatantly lied on this issue, issue A, um, he cannot be believed on any other issue that he testified to. Um, so the parallel that I'm attempting to draw here is that the same does not apply here when it comes to a criminal conviction uh, for one or multiple years. Um, if the defendant taxpayer is convicted for um, fraud related to tax returns uh, from that period uh, of 05, 06, 07, that doesn't mean that um, uh, going forward um, in, say, tax years 8, 9, and 10, there's also a presumption that the taxpayer engaged in fraud when preparing uh, his or her returns. And for that matter, even before the period of uh, the fraud began, um, meaning going back before 05, that doesn't mean that the taxpayer was engaged in fraudulent tax um, uh, shenanigans on those returns as well. Now, if the taxpayer files a fraudulent original return, the statute of limitations, and this is really interesting um, because uh, it's kind of counterintuitive to what uh, you might think, but if the taxpayer files a fraudulent original return, the statute of limitations generally is unlimited even if the taxpayer later files a non-fraudulent amended return for the same tax year. So let's assume that the tax year happens to be 2015 and it's a fraudulent original return that the taxpayer submits to the IRS. Um, the rule, as is stated here, is that the statute of limitations generally is unlimited even if the taxpayer goes back and files an amended return for that same tax year, tax year 2015, and the amended return um, corrects the uh, fraud in the original return. So again, it's a non-fraudulent amended return for the same tax year. Um, the rule here is that the statute of limitations is unlimited. There is an exception, um, and the exception here is that, um, and this is, this is to set it all up so that you can understand it um, with a concrete example. If the fraudulent, these are, these are the facts that would have to play out for this exception to apply. The fraudulent original return is filed before the due date of the return. So let's say, for example, we're dealing with an April 15th um, due date. Uh, which is uh, typically the uh, due date for tax returns. So the fraudulent original return is filed um, before the due date of the return. In this case, we'll assume that it was April 15th and that there, was, there were no extensions. And then the correct non-fraudulent amended return is filed on or before the due date. So let's um, add another fact here. Let's uh, say that the fraudulent original return is filed on April 1st of 2015. And um, we're, of course, now dealing with tax year 2014. And the subsequent um, correct non-fraudulent amended return is filed 
before April 15th. Let's say it's filed on April 13th. So it's filed after the original fraudulent uh, return was filed, but before the um, deadline for the tax return to be filed. Um, and it was so the uh, non fraudulent amended return is filed um, a few days before April 15th. Under those conditions, the amended return supersedes the original return and is treated as the original return for all purposes, which means um, you, uh, the taxpayer need not worry about A, uh, the possibility that um, you know, the fraud will prevail or that the tax um, or that the revenue agent will discover fraud because again the um, amended return supersedes the original return so the original return uh, gets banished into the ethers of cyberspace and uh, the taxpayer need not worry about the uh, fraud the fact that the original return was um, uh, the fact that the amended return corrected the um, the fraud on the original return and was filed before the deadline, uh, that being April 15th, um, that amended return um, for all purposes uh, supersedes the original return and um, is the one that uh, is is the one that is um, you know viewed by the IRS. Um, now, what if the taxpayer initially fails? To file a return but later files a non-fraudulent return. An argument can be made that, um, well, when by not filing uh, a return and uh, if the taxpayer had done so fraudulently um, and then later files a non-fraudulent uh, return, although late, that the normal three years uh, limitation period um, would uh, would not apply because there was some fraud involved in the very failure to file the return in the first place. Um, and so um, under those circumstances, there should be a um, there should be a uh, statute of limitations that is unlimited. But in theory, I mean in theory, um, I suppose that um, an argument could be made like that. But um, again, it would be very difficult to establish uh, that the failure to file was done fraudulently unless there are significant badges of fraud um, that attach to it. Um, so under those circumstances, uh, the normal three-year limitations period uh, would, uh, would apply. In, uh, and again, this is probably the, uh, the prevailing wisdom um, because not many taxpayers are going to admit to having failed to file a return fraudulently. They'll um, perhaps uh, have other bases, uh, legitimate bases, for failing to do so. So under these circumstances, uh, the normal three-year limitations period would uh, begin to run from the date the return was filed. Um, so the answer to this age-old question is of what if the taxpayer initially fails to file a return, uh, albeit fraudulently, but later files a non-fraudulent return late. Uh, the conventional wisdom and or prevailing wisdom here is that the normal three-year limitations period would apply and that it would begin to run from the date the return was filed. If you have any questions um, about this topic, I know that it can get a little bit hairy um, and uh, a little bit complicated. 
Uh, the main thing to remember here in dealing with the statute of limitations is that um, it is, um, it's always, well, not always, I hate to use um, a term that's as conclusive as that, but the statute of limitations tends to be friendly to the taxpayer um, because it's a clock, so to speak, um, by uh, under which the IRS has to um, act um, in order to um, make an assessment. And so it can, it's oftentimes viewed as taxpayer, as a friend of a taxpayer, the statute of limitations is. Um, and yet it can um, sink the ship of a taxpayer um, if it, um, you know, if the taxpayer is in such a rush to uh, file a return uh, to avoid the assessment of penalties when that return actually um, contains a roadmap to fraud. So again, if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, and I'm more than happy to um, get into this um, in more detail. But I wanted to kind of give you a bird's eye view of how the statute of limitations works um, post-conviction.